Hey, everybody. Welcome to the REI Dad podcast. Thank you for joining in today live. Um, I am pretty excited. I'm pretty excited. Not only do I get to talk about one of my favorite strategies, I also get to talk to one of my favorite people, um, the guy that taught me how to do these strategies, and that is Barry McGuire. Uh, Barry McGuire is an investor. He's a lawyer. He's a teacher. He is a gardener, jam yeah. expert. <laughs> hey, Barry, how's it going? Hey, good, Wayne. Good. I was out in my garden today. I picked uh, the last few of the uh, cherries off my cherry tree and a cucumber and a couple of tomatoes and inspected the chard and everything's zooming along nicely. So I'm a happy gardener right now. That is awesome. And how is it today? I got my window closed. Is it nice out? <laughs> it's, uh, you know, 20-ish sunny and it's quite windy though. It's like 30, click, 30 to 40 click winds, but hey, the weather what can you say exactly exactly um this is a very very popular topic and i don't actually cover it that much on my podcast because i'd rather you cover it you you explain it way better i start going off on tangents and all that stuff so you have a very simple way of explaining the strategy and 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 i know you're you're probably not going to agree with me but you're the master you're the guy to go to when when you want to learn this strategy you know, you, you hate to say you're the master at anything because that's kind of how we're we're built. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but really, I've probably been teaching it longer. Well, I, I know I'm really kind of the only lawyer who teaches it, as far as I know. I've been doing it a long time. And, uh, yeah, probably. Okay, I'm the master. Fine. That's it. <laughs> Credit when it's due. Um, so, you know what? Let's just dive right into it. Um, most people know who you are. But what is... An agreement for sale. An agreement for sale, Wayne. Um, uh, you ready for this? An agreement for sale is seller financing. Okay, that's it for this podcast. I have an early tea time, so I'm done. <laughs> that's it. Is it that simple, Barry? <laughs> no, no, it's not simple. It's it's fairly it's fairly easy to explain what it is, but like. Like everything we do, the, you know, the devil is in the details. I'm pretty sure you didn't get hired on as a non-destructive tester without uh, having a whole bunch of schooling behind you and a whole bunch of supervised work and a whole bunch of lots of things before anybody ever, you know, relied on your say-so that a weld was perfect. So, Absolutely. You know, creative strategies are like everything else. It takes a while to learn and figure out and do, but you know, it's, it's kind of simple to say that a, uh, an agreement for sale is seller financing. So where does it show up? Uh, shows up obviously in a, in a real estate purchase deal where a seller for various reasons is prepared to be your bank. So right. the, the most common application of the agreement for sale strategy here in Alberta anyway, is where sellers... Um, Sellers' properties are near, are worth near what they paid for them, or even more commonly, worth only what the mortgage is on the property. So, um, in a circumstance like that, a seller wants to sell his property, and let's let's take a three hundred thousand dollar property um, as an example. Our classic right. three hundred thousand dollar deal. I realize in other parts of the country. The classic deal might be 500 or 700 or 900,000, but let's go with 300,000. So if a seller 
bought a year ago for $300,000 and put 5% down, 5% of 300,000 is uh, 15,000. So got a mortgage for 285,000, 15,000 cash out of his pocket, a CMHC mortgage. I mean, today let's be charitable and say that the, the house is worth 285. Let's say it's worth the value of the mortgage. And mm -hmm. that's certainly lots of places in Alberta where values have dropped 5% in, in the last year or two or three. For sure. So if you're that seller, let's, let's say you're the seller. Let's, let's say you're our pretend seller and you and your wife have to move because you've got a new job somewhere else. And so you say, sweet, we, we've got to sell. She says, yeah, well, the mortgage is 285000 and that realtor that came in to talk to us to give us the free certified market analysis tells us it's really worth 285000 So as a guy who knows how sales things go, Wayne, for that seller, uh, he's facing two big financial issues, one with the realtor and one with the bank. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you, what? What two big financial issues is he facing? Well, with the bank, you most homeowners, they lock into a big five-year fixed mortgage, right? They try and get the, the good interest rate. They want to lock it in. But what they don't realize, especially first-time homebuyers, is that there is a clause in there that says that if you want to cancel it early, you either need to pay the three months interest or... An interest rate differential. Now, not every mortgage package is like that, but in a lot of cases, whichever is greater. And that, or, I'm not going to get into the interest rate differential, but you know that could be if you're one year into your five-year fixed term, you could be looking at anywhere between ten to twenty thousand dollars worth of cancellation fees. The other oh. one with the realtor is that a realtor wants to see that you have equity in your property before they sign an agreement with you. Because they don't want to sell your house and then you'd be like, ah, I don't have money. So a lot of times if you don't have that equity, they'd say, I can't help you or I need you to pay me up front. So so there you go. And, and on 300000 uh, in Alberta, the typical real estate commission is uh, 7% on the first 100000 So that's 7000 mm -hmm. then 3% of the balance. So 3% of the remaining two hundred is 6000 so 13, six plus seven, thirteen thousand dollars plus legal fees and to 20 plus legals. So for that seller to sell his house worth two hundred eighty five thousand dollars with a realtor and pay out his mortgage is going to cost him somewhere around thirty thousand dollars out of pocket, out of pocket, out of pocket. So. That seller and his wife and the family are sitting there looking at themselves going, what, you know, what are we going to do? We can't, <laughs> we can't write a check for $30,000 to sell our house. So if we work this into our agreement for sale strategy, the, I mean, the classic is to go along, look at the house, uh, accomplish some diligence, because as we've heard any number of times, just because you can get a house for free doesn't mean you should buy that house. Absolutely. So you got to look at that house, decide whether or not um, if you can make an agreement for sale work, and we'll get into the details a little bit here. Uh, if you can make it work, 
and by make it work, we mean if you can take on that property and either rent it out on a positive cash flow basis or apply another creative strategy to it, can you take it over and make it work for you on a financially mm -hmm. successful basis? So, so that's the analysis that any buyer has to do. And if the answer after you do that analysis is yes, then we're problem solvers, aren't we? We, we like to, I, uh, I know that you talk about it in, uh, in real estate investment, dad, in your group, we certainly talk about it in the groups that we run, Don and I do. We teach it at our focus workshops. We'll be teaching it on August 22nd when we teach our next focus workshop. We, we train people and tell people that they need to play for win-win and they need to be problem solvers. Mm -hmm. So I would come along to you and say, Wayne and Gabby, you know what? I like your house. This is, everybody has their own way of, of talking about this, but I'd say, you know, I like your house. This house is nice enough. I could move into with my family. I could, I could buy it and rent it out and have happy, happy tenants. I could sell it to somebody else and maybe make some money somewhere down the line. There's lots of stuff I can do with it. But here's what I can do for you right now. I can take over your mortgage payments, your taxes, your insurance, and all of the maintenance on the property. And you can move off to Calgary and you don't have to write me a check for. Now, that's a, that's a variable part of all of these deals. Sometimes, sometimes you might say to the seller, and you know, regretfully, you got to write me a check for ten thousand, but it's not thirty thousand. So, a desperate seller in a circumstance like that, and maybe not desperate. I don't, I don't like to use the word desperate. Now, I know you don't either. They just don't know what to do, and they've got a problem they want to solve. So, someone with limited options. Limited options. Yeah, that's a better way to describe it. All of a sudden, if you come along and say to them that you can take the house off their hands, take over their mortgage payment, their taxes and insurance and all the maintenance. Um, it's a way out. All of a sudden, the dark clouds have, uh, have parted and you're offering them, uh, you know, a really good option to what they thought was an insoluble problem. Mm -hmm. So what happens in, a, in, in this particular circumstance? We call an AFS seller financing. So how is it? Is it seller financing? You write up a purchase contract. Um, it says it's going to proceed by way of agreement for sale. You attach a financing schedule, which you learn how to do and how to write these contracts in our focus workshop. And essentially, you take over the mortgage and all the payments and it closes down the road. So you didn't have to go to the bank to, to get a new mortgage to buy the property. The seller is your bank. So not only are you a problem solver, but you've also uh, eliminated the need to go off and get new financing, which let's face it, um, it doesn't matter who you are, unless you're Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or one of those guys, sooner or later, you, you run out of financing room. Yes. So that's, that's uh, you know, kind of a brief description. If an AFS is seller financing, that's an example of how you can buy a property uh, using the AFS strategy. So to be clear, this is not assuming the mortgage, correct? No, you're not assuming the mortgage. You're not assuming the mortgage. And that's a, 
that's a good point. If you're if you're taking over somebody's property and he still has a mortgage, you know, why aren't you assuming the mortgage? Well, I mean, there's a few reasons. So so let's to be clear. <laughs> ah, to be clear. To be um, clear. To be clear. If if the mortgage is to Royal Bank and you do this deal and Royal Bank comes along and goes, hey, Wayne. I guess it'd be hey Barry, because you're the owner and I'm the I'm the buyer. Hey Barry, I see you're kind of running this house and uh you know that looks to us like you've taken over the mortgage. It, I mean if, and if they won't listen to anything I say, like well, um, you know, Wayne's name is still on the title. Wayne is still making the payments out of his bank account or a bank account that's got his name on it, at least. Um, Wayne's, Wayne's name is still on the taxes at the city and all those payments are being really made through Wayne. Uh, how is that an assumption? If they go, you know, we don't give a rat's patoot, Barry. We think you've assumed the mortgage. Well, you know, then we better have a plan B. But what's happened with these, and this is a question that gets asked all the time. So it's a good one to ask. Why is this not assuming the mortgage? You're not on the title is the big is the big answer. And the payments are still coming from your account, which is the secondary answer. And we've learned actually in the beginning when we started teaching agreements for sale, we said to people, okay, you're going to do this. And, and this would be whether you're on the buying side or the selling side. We'd say, you better go talk to the bank and tell them you're buying the house by way of agreement for sale. And uh, you just want to make sure it's okay with the bank. Because mm -hmm. that would be the careful way to do it. And, and so the answer, um, the answer we get, so I'm changing hats now and I'm the, I am the banker and we're in the branch and you've just come in to see me as the seller to tell me you're selling the house by way of agreement for sale. And, you, and you're asking me if it's okay and can you do it? So here's the answer that bankers gave most of the time. So Wayne, just wanna confirm what you've told me here. So you're selling the house, right? Right. Uh, but your name's still staying on the title. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And the payment's still gonna come out of your account. Yeah. And you're still, um, you know, going to be on the tax roll at City Hall and taxes are going to get paid and the house is still going to be insured in your name. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Well, you know, I hear what you're saying. You're selling the house. But for, from our perspective as the bank, if you're still on the title, if you're still making the payments, if you're still on the tax roll at the city and still on the insurance, then we don't really care what you do. It looks the same to us as it looked before. And so that was the answer that um, that was the answer that was obtained when people went to the bank. So after a while, we just quit saying to people, you got to go to the bank and get this straightened out because all it seemed to do was caused puzzlement at the bank and didn't get anybody any farther along. So we've quit doing it. Um, I say again, if some big bank wants to take the position that you've assumed the mortgage and they don't like it, well, we're not gonna start lawsuits with big banks and you, you, know, you should have a plan B uh, if you ever do an agreement for sale. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the assumption background. 
so me and my wife are sitting at the table wondering, Barry, why don't you just assume my mortgage then? If I assume, why do I have to keep it in my name? The nature, one of the one of the key things about an agreement for sale is that title does stay in the seller's name. That that is just part of the legal framework that surrounds an agreement for sale. Now, mm -hmm. we can talk a little bit about what an assumption really is. If I wrote you a purchase contract and said, Wayne, I want to assume the mortgage. If we did that, and let's say the bank approved that assumption, title would change into my name. The bank would uh, officially take an application from me, just like I was getting a new mortgage. And if they approved it, title would transfer to my name, yours and Gabby name would disappear off the title, and I would be the guy responsible at the bank. But with an agreement for sale, that doesn't happen. Title stays in your name and you still make all of those payments. So it is a way to purchase a property. And I guess another question people ask is, well, if my name isn't on the title, then who am I in this deal? Mm -hmm. how, how am I an owner or a buyer if title didn't transfer to me? And the answer to that is that um, every piece of property has two titles attached to it. Uh, it has a legal title. And it has what's called a beneficial title. And so for Wayne and Gabby, who own their own home, and their, their names are on the title. And for Donna and I, who own our own home, and for most people who own their own homes and whose name is on the title, they have both the legal title and the beneficial title. Okay. So they, they own both titles. But when you, uh, when you uh, buy a property by way of agreement for sale, the seller still maintains the legal title, and that's why he keeps the title in his name. The buyer, on the other hand, now owns 100% of the beneficial interest in the right. property. So um, this would be beneficial interest. What's another way to talk about that? If I said to you, uh, Wayne, um, I want to buy a property, but I don't really want the world at large to know that I own this property. I don't want them to know. So you're my good pal. I'm going to give you 300000 cash, which I happen to have. And I want you to put your name on the title to this new property that you're going to write up the property. You know, the offer will be in your name. I'll make sure you get 300 cash. You can pay for it. Your name is going to be on the title. But Wayne, you and I, because we're good buds, you understand that really I'm the 100% beneficial owner of the property. You're the legal owner on title, but really it's mine. Right, Wayne? Yes, sir. Yeah. So that... So that is another kind of description of a split title situation. Gotcha. So that's that's how that works. And when you have 100% beneficial interest in the property, uh, you can file a notice against the title uh, in all provinces in Canada, uh, saying that you have that you have a beneficial interest in the property, so that the seller can't go selling it off to somebody else. People mm -hmm. always wonder, I'm not going to protect myself if I'm not on the title. So. In Alberta, we file something called the caveat. In other provinces, you file other different kinds of notices. How are we doing? We're doing great. We're doing great. If, if I could go back to the um, the mortgage assumption portion, um, the way that I approach it, because it's a very common question that I get, is why don't you just assume it? Or why don't you just buy it outright? Well, to, to answer the second question, the reason I'm not buying it outright is because I'm not going to pay full market value. I'm an investor. Why I'm not assuming it is because 
I don't know how many years back, but they changed it. it. You used to be able to assume a mortgage and not have to qualify. Now, when you want to assume a mortgage, you have to send in all your paperwork and everything else. So you're practically buying it outright, you know, for full price anyways. So if I'm going to take this problem off of your hands and inherit this problem with my certain set of skills, I need, there needs to be something for me. And those two things are the fact that I'm getting in, you know, I'm, I'm not putting 20% down. And the second thing is that you're going to carry the mortgage for me. If you want to save twenty, thirty thousand $30,000, this is what I need from you. Because this is, this is just as much of a problem for, for me as it is for you. It's just, I have a certain set of skills where I can turn this around and make, and, and actually make money off of it. You don't have those skills. So that, that's, that's the way that I, that I look at it or I, that I explain it when someone asks me is that those are the two main reasons why I'm taking it, taking this off your hands. And, you know, and that's a good explanation. And, um, I think it points out something that we, we like to emphasize. I know you do and Donna and I do in, in our courses is that, and, and the best person in the whole wide world at this explaining it is Andrea Workington. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to say to that seller who has the problem that you're looking to solve, that this is a business for me. It has to make business sense for me to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the ways that make business sense are exactly what you said. So that's, that's kind of a kind of a little add-on if people are looking for how you explain or what the words are. Your description of why you're doing it that way uh, works. And people often understand that if, if you say, this is a business, we want it to be win-win, but it has to make business sense for me. Then you mm-hmm. can carry on with some of your other uh, reasons why you need it to be the way you need it to be. So, And and this this solution isn't for everyone who's in that scenario. A lot of people would just rather prefer to to sell it at a loss or they'd rather to become an accidental landlord, that's entirely up to them. You're offering a solution if they want it, great. If they don't want it, you don't have to push it on them. There's plenty of people who could use your help. Um, Now that's just one example of a scenario where you can help someone out of a a situation. What, What other examples could there be where you could use this strategy? The, um, the place where the seller's value of the property and mortgage uh, the the circumstances where the where the value of the property is close to the value of the mortgage or sometimes under the value of the mortgage those circumstances are the most common circumstances for agreements for sale mm-hmm. because let's face it realistically speaking uh, when sellers are looking to sell what do they want? They want to they want to sell and be on their way. They want to sell and get all the, their cash in their hand. They want to sell and be done with the property. They don't want any little tail ends hanging around and they don't want to be a bank overall. Mm-hmm. So where, where they can't sell is the place where the AFS strategy works uh, the best, but it does work in, uh, in, uh, in lots, actually lots of other circumstances. So sometimes, Sellers um, just have a bee in their bonnet about wanting to get the price that they want. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes sellers, just, they just cannot abide uh, selling a property for, for less than what they paid for it. Mm-hmm. Even, though, even though they know intellectually, even though they know because you've showed them the market analysis, that the price they're asking 
is is way over what the market says the value is. They just can't stand it. So, uh, in I've seen actually quite a number of of circumstances where if a seller has that particular viewpoint, if you can give them their price, you can in turn demand terms. Exactly. You can demand terms if they're if they're going to get their price, and if if giving them their price um, has the reciprocal of getting terms that still make the property work for you, then uh, you can find a seller who would like to sell by way of agreement for sale. And uh, always the diligence and the and the mathematical analysis has to tell you that it is a good business deal for you. So. Right. Uh, so there's one. Sellers want their price. Um, another circumstance is where sellers um, might have a good chunk of equity in property and they'd like to sell, but the notion of having those big payout penalties comes up again. Right. Sometimes sellers, I've seen as much as six months penalties, and with a you know with a B lender who's charging a higher interest rate. And one of those longer fixed-term mortgages. I saw one the other day where somebody locked in for 10 years uh, with a B lender, and they were two years into a 10-year mortgage, and it was like sixty thousand dollars <laughs> to pay out this mortgage. Now that's not common. I mean, no, but... five years is really uh, the most common longer term, but you can get seven and 10-year mortgages, and every once in a while, uh, that shows up. So. In that particular case, the seller was happy to sign up for an eight-year AFS so that they didn't have to um, they didn't have to pay a sixty thousand dollar payout penalty. That's a and huge win-win. It is, you know, huge win-win. Um, the next circumstance that comes up, I think, is where uh, there's two more where the seller would like to earn a decent interest rate from the money that they would get from a sale. That's the one that I was going to recommend next. That's that's I think that's very underutilized. Okay, so let's since you know about that, let's hear you talk about the one where the seller wants to earn some money and you and I'll trade back and forth on that one. Well, I've personally used this strategy myself for selling a property. Um, but I mean, let's go back to your original example of the $300,000 house. If you, the seller and, and the investor are having a hard time trying to figure out, you know, if, if this is a good win-win, the seller could propose that, hey, I've got a 2.5% interest rate, really low. I'll let you do this, but the interest rate I'm going to give to you for seller financing is going to be 3.5. Now, that's a 1% spread. So every... so probably shouldn't overcomplicate it, but you know, the seller has their mortgage, their loan with the bank, and they're giving you seller financing. So if the numbers are the same, but except with yours, the interest rate is slightly higher, your monthly payment is going to be slightly higher than their mortgage monthly payment. What that does, it creates a spread of cash flow. So it it might be a hundred dollars, it might be two hundred dollars, but the investor, the buyer still gets all the benefits of the mortgage paid on and everything else. It's just their mortgage payment just a slight amount more of interest to the seller. So yeah. they get the seller gets to collect $100, $200 extra every month. That's extra cash flow. And even better, 
if the seller, uh, so, so we'll take our, our $300,000 example and, and the mortgage of 285, like we started out with, mm -hmm. if this particular seller has paid his mortgage down to $100,000, then, and he says, and my mortgage is at two and a half percent, so I'm going to charge you three and a half percent. You, as a buyer, you're paying three and a half percent, not on a hundred thousand, but three and a half percent on probably two hundred and eighty-five thousand. Exactly. So now, the seller's payment on his one hundred thousand at two and a half percent is pretty small, mm -hmm. and your payment on three and a half percent, which is very reasonable still for you. Yeah. But based on $285,000, all of a sudden the seller is getting some decent cash flow. He might be up to three or $400 a month in cash flow. And they don't and, have to be Wait, and it, gets better. Wish, more. it gets better. There's more. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, I don't know why it's so funny, but you know, those guys on TV get to do it all the time. Yeah. Um, and I like to do it too every once in a while. <laughs> so wait. I, so what if this seller actually has a clear title property, mm. a clear title property, and um, so he doesn't know a bean on it, but he would like to sell you his house now for $300,000. And let's say he says, okay, well, Wayne, you got to give me $15,000. So that's only 5% down for you, which is fabulous financing. Yeah. And on the $285,000, the bank rate is two and a half right now. I need a little bit more because I'm not a, used to be in a bank. So I want to charge you three and a half percent on $285,000. Whoa. Now, now the seller has got a smoking good payment coming to him every month. Yeah. So if he was going to get his chunk of cash, if he, if he was going to get his 280 or yeah, if he was going to get 300 grand, because you could pay cash if he took that to the bank and said, okay, well, I've got this big chunk of cash. What can I do with it? When banks are lending for five years at 2% and you want to come in and, and buy a GIC, I'm telling you, I mean, you'll, you'll be lucky if you get 1% if you take all that money to the bank and invest. It. Yep. But in an AFS strategy, he can get three and a half or four and a half or whatever we're just using that as a number. A canny seller will look and try and figure out what number he can charge you, what interest rate he can charge you that will still let the property work for mm -hmm. you. And if, if, if the seller figures out that it's four and a half or 5% where you can still be positive cash flow, he'll go, Wayne, this is your lucky day. I'm going to be your bank at only four and a half or 5%. And if those numbers work, you're likely to say, I'm happy. It's my lucky day, and and now the seller is really starting to coin uh, to coin the money. Yeah. So that's a that's an excellent place to apply the AFS strategy. It takes a little more digging. You know, you have to uh, get a little more uh, a little of more answers around the question. If you don't mind me asking, why are you selling the property? Which can really help you explore with the seller what he's doing and might lead you to, if I could tell you how to to make a guaranteed income on this property, would that be attractive to you? And then that leads into your discussions about uh, why the payment you would be making him is good cash flow for, for he, the seller.
But wait, Wayne, there's more. You said there was one more. <laughs> there is one more. There's at least one more. The other thing you can say to that seller is, um, you know, I looked at the title and I see that you bought this house um, 15 years ago for $50,000. Is that right? Yeah, got a good deal on it. Okay, well, if you bought it um, and it's not your personal residence, if this is a taxable property for you, then you mm -hmm. made $250,000 and uh, you're going to have to pay tax on that $250,000. And if you sell to me through an agreement for sale, you can postpone paying the tax over five years. So you can pay whatever your whatever tax turns out that you have to pay, you can pay 20% of that tax each year for five years and spread it out so you don't have to pay 100% of it in the first year. So now he's making money and saving tax. And so that's kind of the other end of the AFS spectrum um, as opposed to the sellers who are really needing a hand up from a, a property where the mortgage is probably worth what the, uh, is what the property is worth. So that's the mm -hmm. other end of the spectrum. So I'm wondering if we should go back into theory or whether we should continue on with, you know, how can an investor use this? Because we've been using the simple, um, no equity, low equity situation where it's going to become a rental, but this can also be used on fix and flips too, right? Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, um, if we, if we want to just keep this back to basics and, and, um, and simple as investors uh, and when we're looking at a property, um, it, it doesn't matter what strategy you think you're going to apply. Uh, one of the questions you ask yourself is what's my exit? If I'm able to acquire this property, what am I going to do with it? And mm -hmm. lots of our buy and hold investors, we all have buy and hold properties in our portfolio. And for most of us, that's the majority of the portfolio. The creative side is, is a smaller part. Not that it couldn't be bigger, but just folks, just so you understand, we do like buy and hold and we're not coaching against buy and hold. I'm keeping all my buy and hold properties, at least for the foreseeable future. Yep. But, um, but if you're looking at, um, always knowing what your exit is the key you can't exit unless you enter you got to be able to enter and if if your ability to enter properties in other words your ability to buy properties is now stopped and stymied because you can't qualify for any more financing or maybe you couldn't qualify at all for financing then uh you can't do anything you can't exit any properties if you can't enter any more of them so when we talk about what else you could do with an agreement for sale, the key part to start with is you can acquire a new property with seller financing, which leaves all of the exit strategies, all of the potential exit strategies available for analysis. So uh, let's go to a fix and flip point. So um, we'll change hats. I'm the seller now. I've sold you that property. Uh, and you've really taken over my mortgage at $285,000. Maybe I paid you a little bit of money. Uh, maybe I didn't. But you now have the property under your control. So fix and flip. How would you do that? How would I do that? Um, this the scenario that I like to use is, is, you know, for fix and flippers, typically, 
you're trying to find off-market deals and you're trying to find them as cheap as possible because you need to be able to get a, a good enough spread between your buy price and the sale price less your renovation costs right so most flippers don't use conventional lenders and the main reason for that is because if you do it often enough a, a lender is going to stop doing business with you if you keep getting saying you know getting a mortgage and then selling it three months later right so a lot of flippers go with private lenders and private lenders charge anywhere from 10 to 15 percent for the to borrow the money so if you're looking at your costs over a three to six month period on how much interest you're paying to that private lender, could be anywhere from 10 to $20,000. If your seller was able to give you seller financing, you could theoretically pay 10 or $20,000 more to the, to the seller because you're saving 10 to $20,000 worth of interest. Because if you can secure it with your seller at that low 2.5, 3, even 4%, you're saving 13%, 10 to 13% on interest on that money. So I always recommend this to flippers as well as if, if you can't quite get that price that you need in order for it to work, ask them if they'd be willing to do seller financing at a lower interest rate, because you're going to be paying that interest anyways to a private lender. So, 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 so there you, there you go. If, if your, if your purpose in life is to, is to be a fix and flipper, you know that the key is how you buy. You have to buy well. You have to have enough of a gap between what you buy at and what you can sell after the renovation is done um, to allow for the ups and downs of fix and flips. And, you know, you need a margin of safety and, mm -hmm still need to be able to see that you can make a profit even after uh, allowing for all those things. So, so yeah, if you, if, if you're a person who knows how to fix and flip acquiring properties through an AFS and uh, it's, it's often actually, I think um, a, a positive sales factor to be able to say to the seller, you know what? I really only need your seller financing for four months, but mm -hmm. Out of an abundance of caution, because I'm a conservative person, and I think you are too, let's write it up on an eight-month basis just to allow for the ups and downs of the market and trades and getting things done, just so we're all sure that we can get a good job done, market it properly, and make sure we can exit and get you paid back. Right. So that is, um, that's a really wonderful thing to be able to say to a seller. And if, you're, if you know what you're talking about, uh, and if you play for win-win, folks, and we always play for win-win, if you truly know what you're talking about, you can do that fix and flip, the seller will get that from what you're saying, and they will they will do deals with you because one thing maybe that they like, this particular seller, is you didn't come along and say, well, what I need is, uh, let's see, how much do you have left on your mortgage? Two years? Great. So I need, I need an AFS deal that runs for two years, and then I need the right to renew for another five years um because who knows what might happen and right. that, you know that is something we do say in lots of afs deals but in some circumstances where sellers are edgy about a long-term one a fix and flip that has a short term is a wonderful exit strategy and could be quite attractive to a seller barry we've actually got a question on fix and flips but it's a very long one um i'm gonna i'm gonna put it up 
and I'm going to read it without proactive. I'll read it now. Um, Let's see if we can answer it. Are AFS is good for a flip where the property was purchased at 185,000 and renovations were started, but due to a death, the renos are nowhere near saleable. See, oh, okay, got it. Um, ARV is about 235,000 fully renovated, around 100k in renovations plus closing costs. There is no mortgage on the property. I feel like I should be writing this down. <laughs> Get it on the whiteboard. The Where's the whiteboard? The yeah. whiteboard. That's what we need. Uh, well, hold on here. If it was bought at 185 and the Renaults are 100, that's 285. ARV is 235. Something missing from this picture. Yeah, it, it, I'm just having some trouble with it. And I, and I apologize, John. Um, but maybe you could go a little deeper in the comments. And then after the interview, uh, we can have a look at it and, and, and try and tell you whether that's a good deal or not. Um, yeah. And so why don't we move into, I, I apologize, we weren't able to, to, to answer that correctly. It just, it, I don't think we have enough information to, to really go that deep. Um, why don't we go into why now? Why, why, why do you think it's, it's good to be looking at this right now, today? I love that question. I love that question because then it lets me, um, then it lets me just do a little backtracking and say, how come we're just hearing about this AFS stuff? What's going on? Is this like some brand new strategy that Wayne and Barry cooked up in their, <laughs> over, a beer, over a beer one night? I mean, how come none of us know about this? What's going on? Uh, you know, the, the answer to that, folks, is, sorry, I have to give you a bit of a history lesson. And I, 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 and I like this history lesson. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, uh, back in, back after the, the crash of 1929, there was a long, long depression. There was a long depression. It was particularly bad in the prairies. They, they called it the dirty 30s because um, not only were economic times tough, there was a drought and farms were blowing away um, dust. Everybody was dirty. I mean, you just had dirt all over yourself. Yeah. But times were so bad that um, that people could not pay their mortgages. And uh, especially in the West, Manitoba, Alberta, Saskatchewan, not as much in BC, uh, banks and cities and towns took back properties for non-payment of mortgages and non-payment of taxes. And, uh, I, there's some enormous percentage of properties that were, that were owned by banks and towns and cities uh, just because people couldn't pay. So mm-hmm. during that time, if you went into your bank and said, you know, I'd like to buy my first house. I got it all picked out. I'm ready to do it. If they didn't just kick you right out the door without even talking to you, they'd say, well, Wayne, happy to, um, happy to lend you some money to buy that that house now how are you doing on on gathering in that 50 percent five zero 50 percent down payment we'll lend you 50 percent of the value but you got to have 50 percent down so for most people that was a non-starter i mean who can save 50 percent it doesn't matter what time period you're in saving 50 percent of a house purchase price is a is a big savings drop so 
if sellers wanted to sell, then they had to be the bank because people couldn't go to the bank to actually get a um, to get a mortgage. Mm -hmm. so sellers sold a lot of properties either using the VTB mortgage, the vendor take back style, or the agreement for sale style. In other cases, seller financing. Uh, after the Second World War, the returning veterans all wanted houses, and there were a tremendous number of, of vets coming home, all who wanted to buy and all who didn't have 50% down because you didn't get paid in really very much money if you were in the service. Right. So um, that's when Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation was born to provide lower uh, percentage financing to returning veterans, and then it spread to the rest of the population. And soon, if, if you can now get a mortgage for 5 or 10% down, originally I think it was 10%, then sellers didn't have to provide financing anymore. So the need for seller financing kind of disappeared with the advent of easier bank financing. But with a couple of downturns we've had in, um, in 07, 08, 09, and now again um, in, I guess, 18, 19, 20, um, AFS has come back. There, there is a real place for seller financing for all of the reasons that we've been speaking about here today. So when you say why AFS, why now? It's, it's not a new concept. It's actually quite an old concept that has a new place in today's real estate market. Lots of problems to be solved. Yeah. And, and that's probably the, I say this a lot. It's probably the biggest reason why I love using this strategy with real estate investing, because if you can create a business where you can help people, I think that's the best business you can possibly have. Um, there is, it's a great way to make money with little to no money. And you can help people out of situations. Like that helps me sleep like a baby. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, there's just no way around that, you know, we can all do well by doing good and you, you don't have to beat people up. Um, we like to point out other solutions if we see them and a seller can't, but, uh, that is, I, I think one of the, one of the most attractive features of, of real estate, the way we think about it, Wayne, the way you do in our, our, our focus group students is we always do play for win-win and it doesn't matter whether it's an AFS strategy or a buy and hold strategy or rent to own or fix and flip, it doesn't matter which mm -hmm. strategy it is. We try and make sure there's an honest, fair um, solution for sellers that will help them out of a problem. And yeah, you, you, you never have that stomach churn because you're waiting for somebody to bang on your door and go, hey, some six foot five guy, you screwed my poor old mom and I'm here to talk to you about it. <laughs> so so yeah, it's it's a great strategy for lots and lots and lots of Lots of reasons. And we, you know, we just kind of scratched the surface today on what the heck is an AFS. Mm -hmm. but, um, the, you know, that the intricacies of how it works, um, more details on uh, what it really is, uh, how you find these deals. Where do you find these deals? How you analyze the deals? It's fine to find them, but, you know, are they good deals? How you write them up? I mean, there's specialized paperwork on, on how you write the deals how you close them, how you manage them, how you exit from them. 
there's lots and lots of detail about how an AFS deal works or any of the other creative strategies. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of fun talking about what the heck is an AFS, but uh, there's there's a lot more to go before I would suggest anybody dive in and try and do these. Yeah. And that's all we really wanted to cover today was just the concept um, to all the real estate investors listening and and I guess want to be real estate investors that there is this amazing strategy that can be used that that solves a lot of um, problems that in- investors have when they first start, start getting started. And that's mortgage and money. So as an investor, this is a great way to get in or to not necessarily get in, but maybe when you kind of hit that that roadblock and you're trying to uh, to grow your portfolio, this is a great way to to grow it. You can create a you can create a business around this. There's lots of investors who have created their whole real estate investment business around this strategy. Um, but you're right, this is not a rookie strategy. This is a very advanced strategy, and we we've simplified it today, but. I highly recommend just from personal experience that you definitely get the education before you go and do this, because all of the amazing things that you're creating and problems that you're solving, if you don't know how to do it properly, you could actually do more damage to the seller. So, um, you know, I've, I've even got it right here as, as my last note, but how do you find these deals? Where are these deals? I think it's much better that, you know, if anyone is interested in learning more about the paperwork and all that kind of stuff and how to apply these, Talk to the master because <laughs> Barry McGuire puts on courses um, probably every four or six months. Um, and you you kind of rotate on different strategies, but you do have one coming up in a couple of weeks here um, for an agreement for sale workshop. Um, do you want to touch on that just a little bit briefly before we kind of wind down and what that is and what you're going to be covering and what people can expect to learn? Well, it's uh, it is one full day. Uh, we do go through what, Donna and I, um, my wife Donna and I think are the seven critical steps uh, in the agreement for sale strategy. And those are the ones I just alluded to. You know, you need some education around the strategy. You got to be able to market and find the deals, find them. You got to be able to analyze them. Um, You have to be able to be able to write offers and put paperwork together. You have to be able to to manage. Uh, You have to be able to uh, to exit. There's, I think that's only six, and I know there are seven. But the, um, the, you know, it's a full day course that goes through all of those, uh, all of those issues. We do try and have uh, lots and lots of hands-on. We like to do exercises. Personally, I learn by doing. It's way easier for me to take a piece of paper or a contract and and write out a contract and kind of learn how to do it than it is for just to just to talk about it and try and remember all that. So. Because I think I learn better like that. I think everybody learns better like that. So we do, we do lots of uh, exercises. Uh, we have uh, lots of panels. We have experienced focus workshop leaders who come on at various points in the program to talk about particular aspects of agreement for sale, how they look at it, how they do it. And folks, it's not one size fits all. Um, once you learn about the strategy, you'll figure out your own way to do it. And, and we have. We have pretty good duels between our focus workshop leaders who, who who get on a panel and talk about how they do it, which is not any way the way somebody else does it. So mm-hmm. there's that. And then we also um, we, we also are going to have at least a couple what we call investor spotlights where we we have um, students come on and talk to us about real deals they've done 
uh, right from beginning to end. How did they find them? How did they, how did they uh, talk to the seller? How did they write them up? Why did it work? How did they analyze it? So between exercises and uh, focus team leader panels and investor spotlights, uh, there's a, a really, really good chunk of practical information. It's not just Barry spouting off legal theory that will leave people scratching their heads and going, well, that was nice, but uh, how am I going to remember all this? And what does it really mean anyway? We like to provide a, a practical product that will uh, send you away with a whole bunch of information on how to do things, plus all of the documents that you will need to do this, um, recording of the event. Uh, yeah, so that, you know, it's a pretty full day, Wayne, as you know, from having done a, a few of these courses and yeah, you need to, you need to sleep well, eat well and be ready because it is a full, full day. It absolutely is. And I always, always tell people that the most valuable part of these courses is the question, the panels and the question and answer. I, to this day, still at the end of it, I always pull out my my piece of paper with about 10 questions. And even though I, I think I fully understand this concept, every time I go to a, a new event, I've got 10 more questions. And even for the beginners, don't feel afraid to ask the questions because it, it can be a little overwhelming at first. Um, it, it is a very advanced strategy, but bring your questions, ask your question, get the answer so that you can take action. Because um, yeah, every time I go, there's, I always learn something new. Every single time I learn, just when I think I've got it figured out, someone else comes with a cool deal and 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 they're bragging about how they look at how I structured this. And so it's super exciting. I, I really do enjoy it. And oh, <laughs> yeah, Diva. D Hi, Diva. Diva the cat. She, she's up here because uh, right out behind her is uh, our back door. So she's seen something that's frightened her. So she comes in, she jumps up there and she peers down at whatever is scaring her. Uh, so yeah, so that's what Diva is doing. Just to uh, interject. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Barry, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> it's been an hour, and you can just tell that the both of us yes. we, we love talk. We we could we could go a full day uh, because there is so much to talk about on this topic, and it's it's my favorite. And uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on and and explaining what the heck NF, NAFS is. Now. Um, yeah, it has been, my lordy, how does, an hour goes past very quickly, which, yeah. you know, to, to go back to the event, you know, I always, I always worry that maybe I'm not going to have enough information or things to talk about for the eight, eight hours we spend. And yeah. then I'm talking so fast, that we got to get it all in because just too much. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's lots and lots to talk about. Uh, now, John has come back to us with, um, looks like he's given us some more details I'm just going to read that. I'm going to read it out loud. Oh, I don't have it up on my end, but go ahead. I got it here. So so John has uh, given us more detail on what he had before. So purchased from bank four years ago for daughter and fully gutted. Renovations were done on the main level and brought to the drywall stage. There are structural issues which are common in Regina due to soil conditions, but need to be addressed. New plumbing underground half done. Needs all, all the tin work completed. The father who's doing the renos passed away two years ago and the house has been sitting since. There's no mortgage on the house, but trying to have a win-win situation on this one would be... Okay, so that dot, dot, dot means, John, I think, John, what you're saying is, what would be the win-win situation? 
on this. So, I mean, I've got an idea, Wayne, but let's hear what, Please let's hear what you think. No, I think you should take it away. <laughs> I um... oh, No, no way. No, really. I mean, seriously. No, okay, I will. So the, the part, John, that I don't hear about in here is the classic question that we always have to ask ourselves. So I, I understand all the facts uh, as you put them. But, I mean, the question that you have to ask yourself is, can you buy this place for a small enough price that you can then add on whatever it takes to do the renovation to fix all of these things that you've talked about to do an, a very nice job and bring it all up to code and then sell the place and actually make some money so so that is this this is just a math question i think yeah and you can you buy it for um can you buy it for 200 i mean i don't know what you can buy it for but if the after repaired value is, let's say you're in Regina, let's say it's 300. I mean, we've used 300,000 all day long. Let's use it again. Let's say the uh, the after repaired value is $300,000. I think you said the renovation cost, I think you said from your other note that it was going to be $100,000 to finish the renovation. So if you can only sell it for 300 after renovating and it's costing you 100 to renovate, um, then right now, just at that, you've got to buy it for 200 or less. And if you're going to make any money and have a nice enough gap and enough protection uh, between what you buy it for and what you can sell it for, uh, I mean, you got to buy this place for, I'm thinking, 150000 That I'm, gives you a $50,000 gap. Wayne, what do you think based on those numbers? I mean, unless, of course, he's trying to utilize the fact that the seller is going to carry the financing and maybe he's thinking that it's he's going to keep it for a much longer term. So he's going to get into it. He's going to renovate it. And then he, the seller is going to carry the financing for seven to 10 years and he gets all the benefits of the mortgage uh, pay down and the appreciation. So he's essentially buying it for full market value because he's buying it for the cost of today plus the renovations, which brings it to the full market value. So the question you need to ask is, you know, is that a good investment? Because he's going to be putting in $100,000. That's his, his, his investment. Is that a good investment if you have to put $100,000 in? Um, I mean, the only benefit to an agreement for sale in this scenario is the fact that he, the seller is going to carry financing. Yeah. Um, which kind of leads me in, and I'm not going to say whether that's a good deal or a bad deal. What I'm going to say is that it kind of leads us back to what we were talking about earlier, meaning or saying that a lot of people, they hear about this concept and they think, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go find an agreement for sales, zero money down. I'm driven, which is fantastic. I mean, you say it all the time. One damn deal, one damn deal. However, I see too many people just going in there thinking, I want an agreement for sale. I want an agreement for sale. And they'll do whatever it takes to get an agreement for sale. And they don't really know how to analyze whether it's a good deal or not. And that is why we were talking about taking a course. Um, since you even started your, um, your new group, lots and lots of new people coming in, lots of engagement, lots of um, driven investors. However, they're posting deals and asking if they're good when I know that they haven't taken the course yet. So um, I strongly recommend get the education first and find out what a good deal is. 
before you go and, and try and just get a deal. Um, I mean, that's, that's, that's my point. You know, there's just no way around it. And I, I don't, I'm not much of a sales guy, but I, I do know this, that for the, for what it costs you to take our, one of our courses in particular, this one on August 22nd, you will make your money back. Who knows how many times on doing your first deal? I did. Yeah. Yeah, you did, didn't you? That's right. Not just, yeah, you, yeah. Well, what did you make back on your first deal compared to what you paid for, for taking the course? I found an agreement for sale, which to be honest, probably wasn't the greatest deal. It was just me just getting a deal going, but I assigned that to another investor, um, which is almost like wholesaling. I wholesaled the deal to another investor for $5,000. I can't remember what the course was for Gabby and I, it was a couple thousand dollars. So I made the money back for both of our courses, both of our entries, plus extra. Um, so you'll definitely make your money back. And, and, and that's what I love about you, uh, Barry and, and, and Donna, is that you guys are not salesy. Um, oh, there's Donna. She just poked her head up right behind. There she is. <laughs> You're not salesy. Um, there's never anything at the back of the room. And that's what I love about your courses. You know, um, It's not a $75 course and you're trying to charge something else You know, in the back end. Um, what what you pay for like you you get what you pay for and you get a ton of value and you get a lot of extra support um please <laughs> do, do get the education before you go and try the strategy um this way again so you're not setting you're not just setting yourself up for failure you could possibly be setting up the seller for failure too but and on that on that note i you know, I really enjoyed this today, Wayne. This was a lot of fun. You and I going back and forth. I, you know, I, feel, I feel good about the bits that we got to explore and and uh, got to answer a couple of questions. So, you know, on that note, it's a nice sunny day in my backyard. I'm going to get out and carry on and do stuff. I hope you are too. You and Gabby and Everly. It should be a fun day. We're going to go out and enjoy the sun too. Um, right. Yeah, Sunday is, is family day. I, I always do my interviews on Sundays around noon and then the rest of the day we spend as a family. So, I'm going to enjoy that myself. Um, Barry, again, I said it earlier, but thank you so much for, for coming on and explaining what the heck an agreement for sale is. Hopefully people got some value from this. They kind of got some nuggets. Um, and uh, and yeah, if you want to learn more, uh, check out Barry's uh, Agreement for Sale Focus Workshop on August 22nd.